All right, we are back. As I talked about in the top of the program, we are going to, in this segment, take a look back at the National Lampoon and all that it spawned and, and Doug Kenny's contribution to the National Lampoon. In brief, Doug Kenny and fellow Harvard undergraduate Henry Beard were a couple of characters not much alike in some respects. Doug Kenny was a middle-class kid from Ohio, whereas Henry Beard was a rather affluent East Coast intellectual type. But the two of them fell together in the world of comedy. They worked on the Harvard Lampoon and produced what got a lot of people's attention as some pretty clever parodies. They got the idea that they might be able to take this notion and make a national magazine out of it, a national humor magazine. With the help of a uh, fellow business student at Harvard, they went around trying to find a legitimate publisher to take an interest in them. And they found such an individual, Matty Simmons. He found them very amusing, very bright, and decided to roll the dice on them. So it was these editors of the Harvard Lampoon produced a national magazine, the National Lampoon. That documentary, Drunk, Brilliant, Stoned, Dead, showed how the magazine was quite crude at first. When they finally got around to firing Doug Kenny as the art director, which they did about half dozen issues in, it took a turn to the better. Michael Gross, who we cited in an obituary a couple months back, passed away, I think, in December of 2015, became the art director of the National Lampoon, and its look changed immediately for the better. In fact, the first issue under Michael Gross, which they showed in the documentary, was the nostalgia issue from November of 1970. Just so happens, I have a copy of it. So ladies and gentlemen, let's take a trip back down memory lane 45 years ago, which kind of rocks my world. But yeah, 45 years ago, November 1970. The excellent artwork on the cover shows a 1960s style kid with long hair getting a haircut. (laughs) Very much Norman Rockwell looking uh, setting. And what I think knocked people out about this issue was a section in the center by Michael O'Donohue. It is a parody of a high school yearbook. And this cat, in this case, it's called The Bobcat and is purportedly the yearbook of Ezra Taft Benson High School from 1956. It is quite funny, although Doug Kenny, when he spoke at UCLA, was quoting from it and not doing it justice. This does give me pause, because Doug Kenny is a bona fide comedic genius, and if he muffed it, <laughs> what are my chances? In fact, I think I'm going to succumb to fear on this one and not, not tempt fate. I, I would ask if anyone out there in the listening audience was around close to 45 years ago when Doug Kenny spoke at UC Davis and there's any chance there is an existing recording of that, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. As I say, Kenny's great review in the Cal Aggie leads me to believe that he did a better job here at Davis, here at Freeborn Hall, than he did down at UCLA. Anyway, rather than quote from the yearbook, I'm going to quote from one of the ads in that early issue, which shows Doug Kenny holding a teddy bear with a tin cup in his hand, sitting in an empty lot with a pile of garbage. In the style of a million such advertisements, which we've all seen, dear listener, the ad says, Little Doug Kenny will go to bed hungry tonight, unless you help. Raised in a small village called by the natives Ohio, Doug has never had the things that your children have had. 
He was 10 years old before he owned a pair of Florsheim shoes. He was almost 20 before he had his first ride in a Lincoln Continental. And his parents were too poor to send him to a fancy Swiss private school like his playmates. He has never tasted caviar. Won't you find it in your heart to join the National Lampoon Foster Subscription Program? It costs only pennies a day and can do so much. If you buy a one-year subscription, little Doug Kenny can have a crust of bread and a cup of milk every day. A two-year subscription will send him to school where he will learn to read, write, and play polo. A lifetime subscription will enable him to throw an entire coming-out party for his less fortunate friends in the south of France. Just $5.95 will give you a year of reading pleasure, and little Doug will love you. Subscribe, damn it! Of course, the funny part about this was shown in that documentary, and also in Maddie Simon's book, based on their famous cover, If You Don't Buy This Magazine, We'll Kill This Dog. Simon's named his volume, If You Don't Buy This Book, We'll Kill This Dog. Turns out little Doug Kenny and little Henry Beard and their third classmate from Harvard cut a deal with Maddie Simons that they'd be bought out after five years if the magazine was a success. The magazine was a success. Doug and Henry stuck to their rights to get bought out and walked away millionaires. Of course, when they walked away, so did a great deal of the quality of the magazine, although Doug did stick around a little longer. The very next issue after that, which was a Christmas issue in December, Again, had some pretty spectacular artwork on the cover. A Chinese communist pilot <laughs> flying a MiG is blowing the hell out of Santa Claus with the voice bubble saying, Eat death, bloated lackey of the capitalist toy mongers. This issue had one of the single funniest one-page pieces uh, in the history of the magazine, in my opinion. But this one's going to require a little bit of explanation for our younger listeners. The title was Make Your Own Agnew Speech. Back in 1970, Spiro T. Agnew, former governor of the state of Maryland, was the vice president of the United States, a man a heartbeat away from becoming the leader of the free world. He was, by all accounts, a boob. And it turned out a rather corrupt boob, because while as vice president, he continued to take bribes from the Maryland paving contractors uh, who had bought him off while he was the governor. He, wasn't the governor anymore, and they still kept paying him, and he still kept taking it. When word of that got out, Nixon, who was having quite a bit of trouble with Watergate by then, threw Agnew under the bus. But back in 1970, during his heyday, he was going around the country giving speeches, attacking leftists, attacking people who opposed the Vietnam War, attacking people who were pushing for civil rights, all as part of Nixon's effort to claim that there was a silent majority of Americans out there who basically were against civil rights and wanted the war. And yes, the fact that the term silent majority has now reemerged after 45 years of hibernation in the current Republican presidential run is a scary thing. And back in 1970, Agnew was pretty scary, although an undeniably amusing part of the attacks he was launching against his political opponents was the fact that the speechwriters kept giving him alliteration to use in these various attacks. He he would refer to such things as the nattering nabobs of negativism out there, which inspired the lampoon piece titled Make Your Own Agnew Speech, which consisted of the phrase, 
My friends, we have been blank too long. Followed by, the time has come to blank. To give us some examples of the first part. My friends, we have been addled by abracadabra too long. Or, my friends, we have been hamstrung by hurly-burly too long. Or, my friends, we have been pinioned by palaver too long. (laughs) My personal favorite. My friends, we have been jaded by jibber-jabber too long. Closing with, and I think I'll just pick three. The time has come to drub the daffy dilettantes of defeat. Or the time has come to saute the scabrous sodomites of salacity. And it's hard to do better than the time has come to kick the kowtowing kooks of kid stuffery. It's hard to top that. All right, I'm still driving for some great stuff by Doug Kenny, but I'm going to run out of time today. Michael O'Donohue was one of the writers that worked under Doug. He was, by all accounts, a rather angry individual. He had a running feud with Tony Hendra at the National Lampoon and wound up quitting, where he then became the head writer for Saturday Night Live. In fact, this whole milieu spawned by the National Lampoon spun into the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and Lorne Michaels came along, took the writers from the Lampoon, some of the performers of the Lampoon, some of the performers from Second City, and built the empire we now would know as Saturday Night Live. So Doug Kenny's not just responsible for the development of the enormously popular in the 1970s National Lampoon. His work directly spun off Saturday Night Live. And he and fellow National Lampoon writer Chris Miller, along with Harold Rimus on the writing team, and they put together what became the highest-grossing movie comedy of all time, Animal House. What's horrible to contemplate looking back on was that uh, Doug's second effort, which which was a bit more loosely wrapped, titled Caddyshack, is now considered something of a comedy classic. But when it came out in the wake of Animal House, it got panned by critics and put Doug Kenny into a deep funk. He and Chevy Chase went off to Hawaii, and Doug mysteriously fell off a cliff, located about 10 miles from where this correspondent was hanging out last November. I didn't know. Some thought it was a suicide, some thought it was an accident. Harold Ramis famously said, Doug slipped while looking for a place to jump. Doggone it, as we're running out of time here, I've either got to do Doug Kenny or Michael O'Donohue, and I'm going to go with O'Donohue today and hopefully give you an IOU for some more of Mr. Doug Kenny in the future. Maybe we'll find uh, his actual talk here at Davis. Wouldn't that be something? But with all due respects to my fellow public affairs host here at KDVS, Dr. Andy Jones himself, a professor of English, I would like to go back to the March 1971 issue of National Lampoon to quote from Michael O'Donohue's Let me show you how to write good. To excerpt, introduction. A long time ago, when I was just starting out, I had the good fortune to meet the great Willa Cather. With all the audacity of youth, I asked her what advice she would give the would-be writer. She replied, my advice to the would-be writer is that he starts slowly, writing short, undemanding things. Things such as telegrams, flip books, crank letters, signature scarves, spot quizzes, capsule summaries, fortune cookies, and errata. Then when he feels he's ready to move up to the more challenging items, such as mandates, objective correlatives, passion plays, pointless diatribes, minor classics, manifestos, oxymora, exposés, broadsides, and papal bulls. 
And above all, never forget that the pen is mightier than the plowshare. By this I mean that writing all in all is a hell of a lot more fun than farming. For one thing, writers seldom have ever have to get up at five in the morning and shovel manure. As far as I'm concerned, that gives them an edge right there. Lesson one in Michael O'Donohue's How to Write Good, The Grabber. The Grabber is the initial sentence in a novel or short story designed to jolt the reader out of his complacency and arouse his curiosity, forcing him to press onward. For example, It's no good, Alex, she rejoined. Even if I did love you, my father will never let me marry an alligator. The reader is immediately bombarded with questions, questions such as, Why won't her father let her marry an alligator? How come she doesn't love him? And can she learn to love him in time? The reader's interest has been grabbed. Just so there's no misunderstanding about grabbers, I've listed a few more below. I'm afraid you're too late, sneered Zoltan. The fireplace has already flown south for the winter. Chinese vegetables mean more to me than you do, my dear, Charles remarked to his wife, adding injury to insult by lodging a grapefruit knife in her neck. And... I have in my hands, Professor Willoughby exclaimed, clutching a sheaf of papers in his trembling fingers and pacing in circles about the carpet while I stood at the window, barely able to make out the Capitol dome through the thick, churning fog that rolled in off the Potomac, wondering to myself what matter could possibly be so urgent as to bring the distinguished historian bursting into my State Department office at this unseemly hour. Definite proof that Abraham Lincoln was a homo. Says O'Donohue, these are just a handful of the possible grabbers. Needless to say, there are thousands of others, but if you fail to think of them, feel free to use any or all of these. And let's close with what's described as Lesson 5, Finding the Raw Material. As any professional writer will tell you, the richest source of material is one's relatives, one's neighbors, and more often than not, total strangers. A day doesn't go by without at least one person, upon learning that I'm a professional writer, Offer me some terrific idea for a story, and I'm sure it will come as no shock when I say that most of the ideas are pretty damn good. Only last week, a pipe fitter of my acquaintance came up with a surprise ending guaranteed to unnerve the most jaded reader. What you do is tell this really weird story that keeps on getting weirder and weirder until just when the reader is muttering, how in the heck is he going to pull himself out of this one, he's really painted himself into a corner, you spring the mind blower. But then... He woke up. It had all been a dream. Which I, professional writer that I am, honed down to. But then the alarm clock rang. It had all been a dream. And this came from a common run-of-the-mill pipe fitter. For free. All right, I'm going to slip one more final item in. This is another one of uh, Doug Kenny's stable of contributors. In this case, Ed Bluestone. This is from the famous, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll kill this dog issue was titled, 23 Ways to Be Offensive at the Funeral of Somebody You Hated. How about number four? Listen to the baseball game on a transistor radio and react loudly to every pitch. Yeah, that'd be somebody you didn't like. Or uh, tell the clergyman that the deceased was a vampire and ask if you can drive a stake through his heart. Alternatively, shake the widow's hand with an electric buzzer. And my personal favorite from Ed Bluestone's 23 Ways to Be Offensive at the Funeral of Somebody You Didn't Like. Show up at the cemetery with your Doberman pincher, and just as the casket is being lowered, have him play dead. Anyway, I hope some of that humor came through because it was mine to screw up, and I hope I didn't. On next week's show, we're going to see if we can't have our financial expert Bob Dunham put some of this big short stuff in better perspective. And we'll probably do more of our usual fare. I just thought I would experiment in today's show a bit. I don't know. Hope it worked. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. 
currently located somewhere east of Puerto Rico. And by the way, if you can, try and stay west of Puerto Rico. Our thanks to Will Durst. We'll see you next week at the same time. We hope. I do would like to thank in closing Aaron Frankel, our public affairs director, who's been going the extra mile for you and me both. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.